Fortunately, Deborah's the more senior teacher, so she'll start. <laughs> so we're here to just field whatever remaining questions you might have, as Steve said. Uh, we'll cover as much ground as we can. And um, I don't know, do you want to start with the questions from that came up this morning in the hall? We could do that. So there was the question that came up around parenting. Uh, Where did that come from? Yeah, so do you want to just re-articulate that? Um, The question, uh, the issue of attachment and letting go, and parenting is particularly uh, sticky for me, um, being a parent, and um, wanted to get a sense of um, if you had any words of wisdom how to thread that needle. Yeah, so parenting is kind of sticky, <laughs> but it's good practice. I, I'm just curious, how many of us here are, are actively involved in parenting right now? Oh, a lot, yeah. And how many of us, maybe not in taking care of children, but taking care of elders or some other kind of caregiving situation? Yeah, a lot. This is what we do in the world, right? <laughs> for, for so many of us, as we take care of each other. Um, and, you know, that's really rich terrain for practice. I just want to start with the, the disclaimer that I'm not any kind of parenting expert. I'm trained as an engineer. <laughs> you know, I have no psychological, psychotherapeutic training whatsoever. So whatever I say is just simply coming from, you know, being a yogi and being a mom. Um, and I was reflecting a little bit after the question this morning, like what is the essence of my, my practice and my family life right now? And... What I, what I came down to is that, you know, just right now, obviously it's constantly evolving, just like every aspect of our practice. But right now, for me, it's very much about uh, honesty, on the one hand, and intention, on the other hand. Those are really the two driving forces in, in the way that I practice in, in my family relationships. So, you know, as yogis and doing this practice, and seeing what a mess the mind is, um, it's the most natural thing in the world. And many of you have been expressing this throughout the retreat, that uh, the, the inspiration, the intention, the aspiration arises for us to really bring wisdom and real love, unconditional love, into our relationships, into our caregiving responsibilities. Um, but that doesn't always happen. <laughs> you know, it's, it's wonderful to have uh, that aspiration and setting that intention is, is really, really important. So this is something that I do all the time, you know, throughout the day, is keep remembering. This is, this is a mindfulness practice, to keep remembering what's my intention, you know, what, what really is my aspiration with my children, with my husband and our larger community, what is it that I really want to bring, and to be very intentional and very clear about that thinking about it every day. Somebody asked me about this in a discussion. You know, I put up little reminders all over the house. You know, there's little Buddha images, and I find quotes and articles, and I stick them up on the fridge, and, and they're constantly rotating so that it stays fresh. And different people have many different ways of doing this, of bringing little mnemonics into their world, into their environment, to help remember. So that's one part of it, is to be really intentional. <laughs> I find that especially in a relationship, this is very important. It's not just going to happen casually. <laughs> we really have to, to make it a priority and to keep remembering. Um, and then to recognize that 
uh, just as here in retreat, you know, things are not going to play out the way that we would like them to. You know, life happens and it's very messy. So honesty is incredibly important, I found. Uh, it's, I feel like it's much more important to be honest than to be virtuous. <laughs> because, you know, we want to kind of skip all the messiness and just get to feeling unconditional love and compassion and equanimity towards our loved ones. Um, but it is what it is. So along the path, there's, there's all that messy terrain, just like in working with ourselves, where we see ourselves caught in unwholesome states, acting them out, not being able to live up to our ideals, not being able to live up to our aspirations. Um, but being really honest about that is, you know, that's, that's the mind, mindfulness practice again. You know, do we want to be kind of whitewashing everything and talking ourselves into kind of a faux a faux spirituality in our relationships, or do we want to actually be seeing it how it is and learning, learning through the process, uh, which can be really hard. You know, it's really hard to be in relationship with this being that you love more than any other particular being in the universe and be caught in a place of really unwholesomeness. You know, that's hard to look at. It's, it's a really courageous practice to be mindful in relationship with those that we love um, because we see just how human and just how vulnerable we are and how we fail over and over again. So we, we need to be very mindful also of not um, setting up our, our practice and our family life and our relationships as another tool for beating ourselves up. <laughs> you know, we don't want this to become just another way in which we're trying to be perfect parents or perfect caregivers. We want it to be a tool for awakening. And just as, as with all parts of the path that deal with working with other human beings or other living beings, uh, it's a vehicle for insight. You know, it's another way in which we can become more familiar with all the things within us that uh, need to be seen. And also it's a gift to our children. You know, if, if we're trying to be perfect parents, good luck with that. <laughs> but if we're trying to be real parents and honest parents, and good role models to our children for how to be sensitive to ourselves, how to be awake, emotionally intelligent, all of those kinds of things. You know, it's, it's just through the process, I, I really believe, of, of grappling with our own demons that we model for our children that that's okay and that they can grow up to be uh, imperfect but <laughs> aspiring human beings that have things to contribute in the world and are on their own paths, whatever that might be. So that's just a, a few words around parenting. Obviously, it's a huge topic and there's some great books out there and great uh, blogs and things that are available to, to help support us as parents. We're definitely not in it alone and it's great to have some support. If we have any Dharma friends that are parents, then we can kind of debrief about the, the joys and sorrows of Dharma parenting. I'm not sure if the person who asked the question this morning still has the question that had something to do with dualism, I think. But if that person still has that question and wants to re-articulate it, otherwise we'll just go on to other questions. Yeah, was it you? Yeah. Yeah. So the person's talking about, I think, some of the things I mentioned in one of my talks, but probably have come up different times during the retreat, that uh, one thing that we open up to, and in a way it's 
some of the first direct expression of wisdom in our minds is the discernment between what's skillful and unskillful. So, you know, as we, the awareness is more stable, a little bit more continuous, the mind actually discerns whether some attitude is making things tighter, more contracted, or whether some way the mind is relating attitude in the mind is actually allowing for more skill, more lightness, more uh, appropriate response to whatever's going on. And then the mind can discern because of the tracking, the continuity of awareness, it can track. So on this basic level, the really we directly see, experience the difference between what's skillful and what's unskillful. And uh, so that world of what's skillful and unskillful is just woven into this reality of a living being trying to do the best we can, right? So in, in that sense, if we're talking about that as a dualistic fact, that that is, seems to be the way it is. Now, people don't always talk this way, and I'm not sure they should, but the way that we relate to that very obvious fact that there is skillfulness, there is unskillfulness, there is wholesomeness, there is unwholesomeness, the way we relate to that changes over time. Initially, as I notice that my mind is skillful and unskillful at different times, initially I feel responsible, like from an egoic point of view, like I don't want to be unskillful, or I'm tired of having to be skillful, or you know, all kinds of different personal reactions to seeing that there is skillful, there is unskillfulness. I want to be the ultimate Girl Scout, Boy Scout, Scout, whatever, you know, or I'm going to be the rebel, you know, I'm going to be anti-good and push the edge and no one can make me good. So we have all sorts of ways that we deal with the deepening recognition that it matters, that some attitudes, some ways of relating harm ourselves and others and some ways of relating are very healing and helpful for ourselves and others. And as our practice, or at least in moments in our practice, as our practice develops and in in, in certain moments, it dawns in the mind that instead of me as a practitioner who cares about, wants to be wholesome, doesn't want to be unwholesome, instead of me intervening with that view, just the awareness of the unskillfulness of whatever attitude is there in the mind or the awareness of the skillful attitude that's there in the mind, there's more of a, a trust that the awareness and the wisdom that discerns that it's unskillful or skillful, it's like that that's enough. And the sort of added reverberation of like not wanting to be unskillful or really wanting to be skillful is unnecessary. And so it but it, it doesn't really change the basic practice of cultivating what is skillful, abandoning what is unskillful. It's really about the um, now having better tools, more, using more wisdom than sort of a volitional restraint from what's unskillful. And uh, 
you know, cultivation of what's skillful. It's, it's more trusting the understanding itself to take care. And part of this insight is seeing that wisdom is not personal, right? It's something that in practice gets set in motion and then with more practice gets more momentum and it's wisdom that does the discerning, wisdom or nature that does the letting go, right? So it, it frees up this idea, frees the mind from this idea that I have to be good. I have to refrain myself from being bad. But we never go beyond knowing the difference between that dualistic, what's skillful, what's unskillful, because this world is really that duality, if you want to call it that, of skillful and unskillful is really here. And that teaching that Steve mentioned, I believe, last night about, you know, it's talked about in the first, in the Buddha's discourse on the Four Noble Truths, where he talks about the middle way, you know, in the tradition at least, that said that this is the first Dharma talk from the Buddha. And the first part of that talk is the Buddha describing this middle way between asceticism and indulging in sense experience. And this is another, because uh, as a living being, there are going to be moments when there's plenty, right? And there are going to be moments when there's, we're not getting what we need. You know, we don't have the temperature the way we want or... So the middle way isn't about not saying no when somebody offers us a piece of cake or, you know, feeling like we need something in order to do the practice. It's, it's really about understanding that what we're um, taking as a refuge isn't about something in this world as sense experience, nor is it about rejecting this world of sense experience. That both of those turn out to be dead ends in terms of the deepest happiness or the happiness of renunciation that Steve talked about last night. The deepest happiness, the happiness of letting go, the peace of non-attachment, that's neither about me getting what I want or me somehow thinking that the things of the world, experiences of the world are in the way of the peace of non-attachment. Right? The peace of non-attachment, uh, the whole point of this peace the Buddha pointed to is that it's unconditioned, it's available anywhere, anytime, but the mind hasn't opened to it, hasn't realized it. But we, you know, in our practice, we begin to intuit how dependency on certain sense experiences is exhausting and stressful, and dependency on being done with it, being done with the world, being done with needing things, is also stressful. And so it's a related, it's because it's related in the sense of a development of wisdom. Right. And a lot of, in Buddhism, you've probably sensed, a lot of the early wisdom is knowing what's not the way. Right. And being willing to abandon that because life has taught us directly, our experience has taught us directly that this isn't helpful. And then we're in this place of patient awareness, right? We're, lear- we're willing to learn. Okay, I'm not going to go there 
you know, I'm not going to seek, I'm not going to pretend. I might have the Danish, but I'm not going to pretend it's going to make a big difference. Like there may be some things you're looking forward to when you leave tomorrow. And it's not like you're better off restraining from having ice cream on your way home or calling your friend as soon as you're in the car or whatever the thing you've, your heart's been leaning into on the retreat. But it is useful to see clearly what that experience is and what it isn't. Like it might be pleasant and then it will end, you know, and then it will be something else. So it won't be, like it may in moments on the retreat seem like if only that, then I'd really be okay. But that's actually a lie, right? Those things that seem so important, if only the knee pain would go away, it would be great. But that's a lie, you know? I mean, not that it wouldn't really feel good if the knee pain went away, but it wouldn't be long before we're just in a different place and there's another thing irritating the mind or another if only. Yeah, thanks for the question. So I guess we'll just go back and forth. Is there anyone who hasn't gotten to ask a question in the hall yet? Uh, yeah, right here. <laughs> so as a follow-up to that, um, in this tradition, would you say that wisdom is the same as intimacy with the heart? Um, like, so making that discernment between that going for the desire or not having it? So is uh, wisdom the same as intimacy with the heart? Uh, it's an interesting way of phrasing it. Yeah, and we all do come up with our own language. Um, you know, as, as Mark was just speaking, it was coming to me like uh, the brilliance of, of the mythological story of the Buddha's early life, you know, which is, is mostly just mythology. There's very little about the Buddha's actual life in the texts, but there's this big commentarial tradition and cultural tradition around it. And that story of him coming out of, you know, this really luxurious, privileged lifestyle and then going through this, this time of, you know, incredible austerity so that you can see his, his spine through his stomach in the front, you know, just getting incredibly emaciated and all, almost being on the point of death. Um, that's such a great, you know, archetype for what each of us has to go through. You know, we all go through that process, really, right? Just even here on one retreat, we get entranced with the, either the sense desires or the spiritual desires, the spiritual goodies that are available to us, and we're seeking gratification there, or we get disgusted with them. And there's this real, like Mark was just saying, this real denial, feeling like if we could just get rid of the, all that stuff, get away from all that stuff, then we could be really peaceful and really spiritual. And they're bo- both sides of that coin are delusion. <laughs> You know, this is what Mark was just saying. Uh, you know, it's not about getting anything. It's not about getting away from anything. What's sometimes called the desire for existence or the desire for non-existence. <laughs> but it's about, so, so coming back to, to intimacy with the heart, it's about cultivating up that deep equanimity of heart where the heart is just at rest with what's sometimes called the suchness of things. It's just the way that things are. It's a stream of constantly changing experiences, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That's what's going on here. And the heart that's at peace is the heart that's unperturbed by all of that, the heart that's not batted around, the heart that feels okay 
regardless of what's coming. It's not grabbing, it's not pushing, it's not resisting, it's not struggling in any way. You know, kind of like that, that sense of softness that I talked about sensing in Shui Um and Sayada. You know, that, that energy of just settled and okay with the way things are. And this, you know, it's so hard for us to even imagine living a life where we're not constantly in a big tussle with pleasure and pain. <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to even get our minds around that. Although we may get a little bit of a taste of it here in the silence. We may have a few moments where the heart is just at rest. It's just quiet. A little mini taste of peace. So, you know, different, different traditions, different ones of us articulate that in different ways. But it's about having a quiet heart, a peaceful heart. Yeah. So it's uh, it's code in a way for pointing toward an insight that arises, kind of one of the early but but really life changing insights, where the mind recognizes that all this is being a human being. You know, which seems so complex. This idea of the outer world and my responsibilities, and my past, and my future. But when it comes right down to it, the truth of subjective experience is something is being known. And the something here in this example, you know, the insight into mind-body, nama-rupa, is, you know, the sensory experience through sight, through sound, through touch, smell and taste, and even the more gross level of thinking, something is being known. And that it's experienced life, me, it's never anything but that something is being known. Your most sublime moments of your life with something being known, the most gross or intense moment in our life with something being known, this moment right now is simply something being known. And so that getting that to some degree, experientially, directly, immediately, um, really is puts a dent into the big habit of thinking the past, the future, the this, the inside, the outside, sort of uh, living pretty much in our interpretation according to the interpretation that we, on, on a conventional level, live in. It, it challenges that. Uh, you know, depending on the, the depth of the insight, it challenges that. So that's why we spend a lot of time training the mind to experience in this way, to experience reality, the moment in this way. Oh, it's something being known. It's just this being known. It's just like this now. Something is being known. Yeah.
So the, the questions about right livelihood and situations where our jobs are not, what? Practicing in the real world, like doing our jobs. Yeah. <laughs> um, the that portion of the path that we usually call right livelihood, it's it's kind of interesting. Uh, here in the West, we make a big deal of this, you know. So like, there's this whole thing of, you know, there's books on right livelihood and courses on right livelihood that are very much about finding like work that we love. <laughs> um, which is wonderful, you know, it's not that that's not worth uh, putting energy into. But the, um, in terms of the practice of li right livelihood, it's really about not harming. So um, we don't have to be curing cancer, <laughs> you know, we don't have to be working with, you know, underprivileged children. Um, we, in the West here, we tend to get, you know, we're so identified with our work in the world, we're so identified with our careers, we tend to, tend to think of this right livelihood as like being a really high bar. But it's just really about doing something in the world that we can that, that allows us to sleep at night. <laughs> you know, do we not have a job that's keeping us awake, feeling bad about the impact it may be having in the world? Are we doing work that we can genu genuinely get behind and feel like okay, this is not doing harm. This is not actively doing harm in the world. This is work that I can feel okay about. You know, it may just be very simple work. You know, uh, cashier in a restaurant. You know, or something. Not, not causing deliberate harm, you know. So, so in terms of considering, you know, are we on track with that portion of the path that's called right livelihood, it's just about considering, you know, are, in, in terms of what we understand to be harmful and, not, and, and helpful, are we uh, earning our living, are we doing what we need to do to take care of us, ourselves in a way that is minimizing harm to the extent that we understand it. And of course that can become a huge practice, you know, that can, in this really complicated world that we live in, can pull in all sorts of strands having to do with how we consume and, you know, resource use and how, you know, lots of different strands. So it, it is an important area, but it's, it's really about, um, you know, being, being able to live in the world in a way that's consistent with our understanding of minimizing harm. Um, and then there's kind of the whole other issue of then, you know, what happens while we're at work? <laughs> Which is, which is not, you know, so much specifically the domain of right livelihood. You know, once, once we're there, once we've made a choice or, or found work that we feel okay about, then what do we say and do, you know, in the context of the workplace? Uh, which is really not so different from how we think about what we say or do in our families, in our communities, and in any kind of social situations. So it's about attending to, to again, our speech and our action in terms of minimizing harm. And this, the, the workplace, just as a family, is a really rich uh, terrain for this. Uh, when I first came to the practice, I was working in the corporate world, and I found it incredibly <laughs> rich and fertile ground for Dharma practice. You know, there's so many places to pay attention to how we're speaking. You know, so you know, like I shared in my talk, there was, there was this period when I started to notice that uh, I was really uncomfortable, started to become really uncomfortable with certain kinds of speech. You know, so there, so I made a deliberate period of practice when I particularly paid attention to gossip, you know, office gossip around the water cooler. And that was really rich practice. Um, and then there was another time when there was somebody in the office kind of, that, that person in the office that just never has anything good to say. You know, they're just always, eh, and this is gonna, this project's gonna be horrible, and this is a disaster. And, um, and as my practice progressed, I started to notice that 
nobody wanted to go to lunch with that person. <laughs> you know, the, uh, people tended to try to get out of conversations with this person as soon as possible. And that really there was a lot of suffering you know, in that person's life. I, you know, rather than just seeing them as, as a constant annoyance, I started to, be, to, to wake up to, oh, that's, that's really a state of quite a lot of suffering. So then I had a period of time when I, you know, specifically practiced in my relationship with this person and just listening to them, you know, and just hanging out with them, going out to lunch with them if maybe they weren't the first person I'd rather go out to lunch with and just, you know, not trying to cure them in any way, but just opening to to this person and what their world looked like through their eyes. And that was an incredibly, you know, rich and rewarding practice. So there, there's, there's many, 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 many ways, you know, in which we can be Buddhas in the workplace, you know, uh, not usually by preaching to our coworkers, <laughs> but just by bringing, bringing what we've seen here just right into how we are and, and wherever we work. Yeah, so the question, comment is about uh, sharing the practice, specifically metta, loving-kindness practice in the role of a pastor. And um, yeah, how to do that, is that okay? Yeah, we're in this world, and I think generally it's really good um, because, you know, what the Buddha taught was not Buddhism. He taught Dharma the way it is. And so in that light, I, I it's just human common sense, but to the nth degree. I mean, that's a a good way to think. When you have a mind that's very clear, balanced, that mind really understands how to, you know, what to do with this human existence, how to be a human being. And so like one of the skillful means we all know about is, you know, the different ways we can recognize the skillfulness of the attitude of loving kindness or goodwill and make that, how to strengthen that as a basic attitude in the mind so it is naturally arising more often, more stable when it does arise, showing up when we really need it, you know, like as a counterweight to the tendency to be angry or hateful. So I think because it's it's really part of the... um, it's really part of the territory of having a human mind. It just makes sense that everybody feel empowered in each of our particular roles to draw on our own understanding and also the different teachers that are out there. And fortunately, these days, people have secularized a lot of the Buddhist teachings. So you can find 
some of the compassion work, self-compassion work, and other compassion work. I know Stanford's done a lot of training where they really turn compassion practice into a, a practice that doesn't use the word Buddha, you know, very much. So you could get a hold of some of those resources. And also the self-compassion movement has a real package now that can be used in any setting that really has the essential principles there from the Buddhist teachings, um, but won't turn somebody off who, you know, is a practicing Christian or something like that. But of course, the most important thing is your own confidence and, and to really come from that place. And because you're already steeped in another tradition, you, if you're really in touch with your own direct experience and your confidence from your direct experience, that translation into the tradition that you're steeped in will be pretty seamless, I bet. Um, and I would encourage you to do it. And then, of course, although it's not necessarily a big part of Christian churches these days, but of course there's a very rich mystical tradition that makes sense to uncover, especially as you start seeing what really works in this tradition. There may be some similar practices that you can tap into in the Christian tradition that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, thanks for the question. Let's see, my eyesight's not so good. If I keep peering into the, the distance uh, befuddledly, that's why it's not personal. <laughs> we'll go with this one right here. <laughs> I have a question to follow up on your talk, Mark, about not knowing. And it, it's like a little bug in my brain because it kind of goes to that sense of, you keep talking about knowing, what, we're no, what is being known. And I want to know how the not knowing fits in with the continuity of awareness. Does that make sense? Yeah. It seems like they fit somehow. Yeah. In some intuitive way, not knowing. knowing I think so, and it's kind of, uh, it's probably a little bit sloppy of me uh, to not be more conscious of how that might be confusing because Normally, in the context of the retreat, we use the word knowing pretty much synonymously with awareness. And, um, but I'm guessing, I don't really remember the context of the talk I gave, but I'm guessing when I talked about not knowing, I was more referring to the mind not established or attached, identified with a concept. So like the don't know mind or... Uh, Letting, uh, learning to be comfortable with things being unformed, undefined, unknown, ambiguous, right? So that's not the same as not being aware. It's like you suggest, it's really in support of awareness because when the mind is doing what's easy for the mind because of habit, which is, you know, it's it, in a sense we're aware, but then the mind very quickly interprets a moment of contact, has a story, an interpretation, right? And then identifies with it. And then it allows, it sort of gives permission for the awareness practice to stop because I know what's going on. I have this idea, this interpretation, this story. 
So I think probably in the talk when I talked about not knowing, it was really about, I should have been more clear, it was more about uh, catching when the mind is dependent on its interpretation, on its way of defining or explaining to itself, narrating to itself what's happening, and realizing like we can be aware of that, and in being aware that that's what the mind's doing, the mind is invited into a place of releasing, you know, that's possible to release that or at least not be confused by the ideas. Like I can know, I can have the interpretation that Deb and I are in IMS answering questions, but I can release the grip and because, you know, my mind knows how to be aware and trust that, I can come into this experience of awareness of the visual, seeing is being known, hearing is being known. And in that experience, feeling the body as sensation, the interpretation isn't front and uh, in the fore and isn't defining the experience. I'm not afraid, I'm not, I don't need to reject the concept I'm at IMS answering questions. I just need to understand that's just a thought being known. So that's probably what I meant when I used that not knowing. Thanks. So I'll try to take one in, in the back, right in the middle here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you probably get a variation of this question at times, but can you, can you comment on the, the line between numbness and being aware of feelings? Uh, I've heard Joseph Goldstein in here I know in my personal life, when I take the practice out of here, I want people to, if some, I want a loved one to be sad if something happens to me, and I want to be sad if something happens to a loved one. And I, I think about that sometimes in the context of this practice and how it could, you could fall into this maybe area of seeing emotions and then numbing them out with awareness. And so can you talk about that line? Yeah, that is a really good point. <laughs> So if anybody didn't hear, it's about how um, we can have the experience and practice that we, we bring awareness to sadness or grief or craving, you know, any, any kind of standard emotion that comes up. And we may have the experience and seeing that really clearly that it just drops away. Of course, also many times when it doesn't. <laughs> but then how, uh, you know, out in the world, uh, we do what we want to feel sad if someone that we love is suffering. We want our loved ones to feel sad if we're suffering. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like we have kind of a comfortable emotional terrain that we may not necessarily want to give up. So it's kind of an, a good encapsulation, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we want to be able to feel joy when wonderful things happen, right? We don't, we don't want to just become kind of numb zombies <laughs> because of this practice. And in, in the talk about equanimity, we can get the sense that it is this moving this direction of just becoming blanker and blanker. <laughs> I remember sitting in a retreat once in Burma and there'd been a lot of talk about, you know, equanimity and awakening and um, it was a retreat uh, with a lot of Westerners on it and at, at, the, at the closing Q&A, kind of like this, this one guy got up and said, you know, you have not made uh, enlightenment sound particularly appealing. <laughs> you know, I don't particularly want to be just blank and 
bland and equanimous all the time. And I found the teacher's uh, answer really interesting. He said that uh, no one can enjoy life more than an awakened being because they're completely present without all of the, the gunk, <laughs> without all of the baggage. You know, there, there is no more delightful way to be in the world. And we start to get a taste of that here, too. Um, that it's much more delightful to be with a pleasant experience without all that overlay of craving and all the, the grabbing hold and the wrestling with it and the, the wanting and the worrying and, and everything that uh, we tend to attach to pleasant experiences. And similarly, it's much more, I don't want to say pleasant, but it's much more um, fulfilling, much more satisfying, much more connecting to be with unpleasant experiences from a place of caring and compassion rather than a place of a lot of aversion and again wrestling and worrying and everything that we tend to add on to that. So, you know, again, it can be hard for us to imagine what it might be like to be in the world like that to where we don't uh, grieve when something horrible happens to someone we love but the heart opens with compassion and there's a very different feeling to that. And we don't, uh, you know, maybe jump up and down and say, yippee, you know, when something good happens to someone we love. But there's this glow of appreciation and gratitude of mudita. So this is part of the transformation process that happens through the practice. This is one of the important areas that I see. So one is the transformation around that area of intention, moving from being, you know, which Steve spoke about some in his talk. So moving from being motivated, you know, mostly by greed, hatred, and delusion, not always, you know, but, but to a large extent, to, as we see that and we reveal that and we become conscious of that, and we also you know, consciously cultivate uh, metta and karuna and uh, generosity, that, that our, our, um, our intention and our motivation in the world transforms from greed, hatred, and delusion more from being on that side to being more on the side of kindness and compassion and generosity. So that's a big transformation. It's like this big shift, you know, in worldview. This big shift in where we're coming from. It's not that what we're doing in the world necessarily changes much at all, although it probably will change as that shift happens. Um, but it's, it's, it's really about where's, where's the place it's coming from. So the same kind of shift happens in our emotional lives. You know, it's not that our emotional lives dry up and run out, but there's this transformation from being more on the side of greed, hatred, and delusion and how we're relating to being more on the side of metta, karuna, mudita, upekka, which is, it turns out is actually a much more delightful way to live, a much more uh, satisfying way to interact with each other, and also uh, a much greater gift to each other. You know, nobody when they're in pain, really wants to be with a friend who's, you know, lost in their own sorrow and grief and, you know, can't, you know, can't get their head above water to actually help. You know, we want to be with someone who's open to our suffering, that's not frightened by it, that's not put off by it, that can really be there and be present for us, you know, do whatever, you know, is really helpful in this situation. So it's, it's, um, it's really only for our own benefit and for others' benefit to, to more and more affect this transformation of the heart from the unwholesome to the wholesome. There's really nothing to be lost by it, even though it can be hard to imagine. Usually at this part of retreat, I feel um, a lot of trepidation about you know, going back out there, which um, I recognize as aversion. And, um, well, this particular time I have a lot more of that. And I'm just wondering, 
Well, I really like the phrase against the stream. Um, but um, how does a person go against the stream, but not without aversion? For example, like I know when I go back home, for me it's really difficult because everywhere people are like, when they walk, they're staring into their cell phones, like literally no one ever looks up. Well, okay, some people look up, but generally not a lot of people. And I just see a lot of like, um, this sounds judgmental, but I see a certain degree of pathology in our society today that is very distressing for me. And it gives me a sense of being like not a part of society and n not even wanting to be there. And so how do you do that? How do you go against the stream without totally rejecting the stream, but even though the stream seems a little bit messed up? <laughs> <laughs> You're being polite. <laughs> So if you didn't hear in the back, this person's talking about the trepidation of going back into the world and uh, is curious about the phrase against the stream, maybe trusting the sense of not wanting to sort of get into the stream of the culture and the toxicity maybe of some of the patterns in our culture, whether it's consumerism or, you know, just the other things we see and feel when we're out in the world. And how do you do that without aversion? How do you go against the stream or create some immunity, some dharma immunity from the stream of culture without using judgment? Or, you know, this is similar to this duality question too, turning, like how do we deal with a world of good and bad, right? Because it's not about pretending it's not about losing the discriminating wisdom as your sort of comments suggest. We don't want to lose the discriminating wisdom that actually feels and sees some of the unskillfulness that's there in the cultural stream. It's really useful to be able to discern appropriately, oh yeah, this isn't really for anybody's good. You know, this habit of our culture or this habit of my family or this habit of my this habit that this relationship I have with this other person that we do together. It's actually really good to feel and see, sense, intuitively know, oh yeah, this is going in the direction of more dukkha, more suffering. It'd be better to go against the stream, as you say. Yeah, and so, I mean, what really helps is to realize that aversion doesn't help. You know, that, that being afraid of the world, being afraid of the messiness, it doesn't really help. To be aware of how it is, is helpful. And, and being aware of the messiness in a relationship or the wider world, and, uh, and in a sense to be touched by what we see, what we sense, the injustice, for example, and the amazing web of causes that ends up including all of our hearts in these systemic injustices, whether it's sexism or racism, economic injustice, nationalism. I mean, there's just so many ways that this affects every relationship. So it's really good to be more clear and more brave, more stable, so we can see the deeper roots of suffering in our hearts, in the hearts of others, in the world around us, 
but only to the degree that what the mind is seeing isn't being misused, like to hate, to hate ourselves, to judge ourselves, to hate others, to justify wanting to disconnect, get me out of here, you know, and sort of go to the proverbial island where no one will bother me, where I'll be just around other people who are wise and skillful and we'll let the rest of the world just deal, deal with itself. I mean, we have all these sort of weird fantasies. I mean, and you, we see it getting played out in culture or just stay distracted, you know, end up watching more movies or reading more books in order to process or to help deal with what we're seeing that we don't like. So the the key about this going against the stream is to realize that uh, it's not about fixing the world in order to be safe in the world. It's not about leaving the world in order to feel safe. It's about staying close enough. And this is what this is what the sort of the edge of our practice. Too much exposure, then finding appropriate ways to back away. Go go use the bathroom now, right? You're in a difficult meeting or whatever interaction, and you're you're not able to be skillful. You're getting caught up. Well, I think I'll go use the bathroom. I'll be back in a minute. And you just take some time to collect yourself, or whatever you have to do. Basically, I'm going to get a cup of tea. Can we pick this up later? Because what we when we're in the vortex of the society's greed, anger, and delusion, or our own greed, anger, and delusion. We're not doing ourselves any good and we're not doing anybody else any good. So whatever we have to do to step outside of that, to break that cycle, we should do as skillfully as possible. But to continue on when the mind is under the influence of greed, anger, and delusion, meaning identified with it, not aware, oh, that's just greed being known, but acting it out, then it's, it's good to do whatever works but when, but we, we need the energy of our teachers, you know, those difficult places in life that do trigger, that do sort of draw us in, draw out the greed, anger, and delusion, because we need to see the defilements, we need to see the hindrances for what they are, something being known, changing, lawful, impersonal, and whenever the mind is identified, they become weightful. We have to keep studying, but on the edge where we're not lost in the greed, anger, and delusion, but not always thinking we have to be secluded from it either, right? So you see that's why in this style of practice that we, the four of us used in the instructions, you know, we didn't emphasize a lot of samadhi, secluding your mind, directing your attention back to particular concentration anchor like the breath, and secluding the mind, we can use that, those, uh, let's just call them samadhi objects, when we need to stabilize awareness. But when the continuity of awareness is good enough, we just allow things to come and go. Thoughts come and go, emotions, memories, sounds, sensation, sights. And we practice in that more messy space. Yeah, thanks for the good question. Yeah. Um, so 
before this, my practice was about sitting 20 minutes a day, maybe four to five days a week. Um, how, like going back home, I'm trying to figure out like, obviously I feel like 20 minutes is going to feel way too short, but like an hour at 5.30 in the morning is not for me. So I'm trying to figure out how do I know where, what that line is or, or yeah. what my practice is going to be. Do you have any advice for that? Yeah, so... Uh, the comments about being used to sitting 20 minutes four or five times a week and then coming here and it's a lot more and 20 minutes a day might not feel like too much but an hour at 5.30 in the morning is not really so uh, simpatico with our lifestyle necessarily. Um, just to, to preface this, you'll be amazed at how quickly you feel very normal again. <laughs> it won't be long before sitting 20 minutes in the morning actually feels like enough. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, we, you know, as we all know, it takes a tremendous amount of effort. Those first days here are really hard, you know, getting the mind and the body to get with the program and get used to doing this. That's a lot of work to get the system used to doing this, you know, so then de uh, here on day, you know, seven or eight or whatever it is, and I feel like, oh yeah, 20 minutes, psh, you know, I can sit down and do that in my sleep, quite literally, you know? <laughs> But when we go back home, then, then the conditions will change. We're not going to be doing it all day, every day. And, um, you know, we, it's, it's very typical on our first retreat or first few retreats to have kind of grandiose plans about how we're going to go home and do a lot of formal practice. And then we find that, you know, we leave and the concentration falls apart because we're not doing it all day long. We really get to see how, just how conditioned concentration is, how conditioned the tranquility is. And we're just back to our normal selves. So that being said, um, you know, most of us do find that there are tremendous benefits to having a regular formal practice outside of retreat. Um, and it can be, not, can be helpful to talk to some of the, you know, the old timers that, when silence breaks and kind of find out what different people are doing and what their experience has been. Um, but 20 minutes a day may be enough. You know? the, the current research actually shows that uh, 15 minutes a day Makes a, makes a detectable difference, you know, through the brain scans. 15 minutes a day of mindfulness practice makes a detectable difference in the, the wiring of the brain and how the brain is functioning. So I find that very reassuring, you know. So 15 minutes a day is great, you know, if that's what we can fit in, or, you know, five days a week. Uh, one of the important things about having a home practice, a formal practice at home, is to really do it in a way that's sustainable, because just as here is the consistency, it's the continuity that is uh, most powerful, having it really be a regular thing, because that's what develops the habits. So it's much better to sit 20, 20 minutes a day than to sit two hours on Saturday. It's, it's going to be much more effective to, to have it be slow but steady than to go like in big spurts of, oh, I'm going to sit all day today, you know, do a whole day of formal practice. Although that's great too, nothing wrong with that. But it's really the, the regularity of the formal practice that has that enduring effect on the mind just as here. It's through doing it regularly that the, the habits start to, to change. And, um, you know, it can take a little bit of experimenting, but usually at some point, you know, as, as the years pass, we start to get a sense of, oh, you know, if I don't get my half hour sitting in the morning, that really makes a difference in how my mind is during the day. You know, so it's, it's important to, to make the connections between, you know, the days I sit, it's like this, the days I don't sit, it's like this, and to, to, to start to really take in the benefits that we're getting from the formal practice. That's when it's, it starts to be easy and stops being something to just check off on the to-do list when we start to really get, okay, this really is making a difference. Or we might see it the next time we come into retreat. 
You know, if we come out of this retreat and we have a resolve to, to sit regularly, and then we come into our next retreat, we might be able to feel how we settle in more easily because there's already a certain baseline level of concentration, baseline level of awareness that we've been cultivating all along. So it gets easier to move back and forth between daily life and, and retreat time. And it becomes just more of a, a groove in the mind. So that didn't answer your question. There's no one right answer. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really helpful to do, and the way to do it is the way that really fits into your lifestyle and that you can commit to. Yes, please. Yeah. So the question is about um, anxiety and obsession or intense emotional states and working with them out in the world and finding that just sometimes just the no noticing that it's something being known isn't enough, right? Is it? Yeah, or like I often don't even know that it's something being known. Right. Yeah. And th- sometimes not even realizing that it is something being known. That's true because it's a big, that's already a huge step for the mind to have enough, for lack of a better phrase, self-awareness to recognize that it's on the cusp of being lost in the obsession or in the anxiety swirling and then one more time unaware, right? So to be able to say, to notice, oh, there is anxiety and obsession, that's, that's already, there's some freedom in that already, just even though it may be very unpleasant, but to know that it's like this now is a huge step. And of course, you know, one of the things in the more rarefied environment on retreat is that just from whatever continuity of awareness that we have and having cycled in and out of times when there was more of the obsession and anxiety, we start to have a better sense of the territory, you know, the supporting causes that come before the full-blown emotional state of obsession or anxiety. And so we can, um, we kind of, the mind knows the cues, like what is the mind doing in the hours, the minutes, the seconds before the mind completely falls into it and is unaware, you know, kind of spinning just in an unproductive, unhelpful way. Because that can help in daily life is we know the territory. And in, and this is uh, this very, very important force of wisdom in the mind called Hiri Otapa, this appropriate kind of concern or regret that the heart has, the mind has, because it knows, 
It has a sense from the past of the kinds of mistakes it's made, thinking, well, it's fine to worry about this, to start thinking about this. But where this voice of conscience says, you know, honey, you've done that before. And this leads to that, and then that leads to this. And before you know it, you're lost in a hell realm for hours, you know. And then even when you come out of it, the heart, mind, body feels all sort of wigged out from having been caught up in that way for that length of time. Because, you know, quite literally, when the mind is lost in these stronger emotional states, the mind is lost in these stronger emotional states. It's not like there's, if there were awareness, we wouldn't be lost in the emotional state. So there's not much we can do until awareness, wisdom awareness, reemerges and goes, oh, you know, this is what's going on. This is what's being felt. And in those moments, then we can, the mind can apply some skillful means for, you know, some of the basic principles you've all been learning, which is at that moment when you realize you're on the cusp of some strong, seductive, emotional state, to realize the content is basically not important. And to help ground, to sort of prevent the mind getting pulled back into the swirl of content. To, to be curious about the feeling that's there, which obviously would be unpleasant. Oh yeah, this hurts. This is unpleasant. This unpleasantness is a feeling being known. But just to know that it hurts. And then there's many secondary sort of Skillful means like to realize I care about how unpleasant this is. So the natural movement of compassion and kindness and forgiveness could come in at that moment. Or some wise sense that, you know, I just don't have the stability of mind to even look at this stuff now and to make a choice before it's too late to redirect the attention somewhere else. You know, I'm going to go do this now. I'm going to go talk to this person or I'm going to change the environment so that the content's being less triggered. You know, that, and I, it's basically answering the question, given that this is up for me, what experience might my, might the awareness be willing to connect with, relate to in a wholesome way? What can I relate to in a wholesome way so I don't by default relate to the obsession and the anxiety in an unwholesome way, taking it personally, spinning with the content. What is available in this sort of present moment arena of my life that I can show up for that's neutral or that maybe is even pleasant, that I can, be, I can relate to with awareness, with mindful awareness? Is there anything? So those are just some, but those moves, those Dharma practices only happen when there's some awareness that the anxiety and obsession is like this now, right? When we're lost, we're lost. The important thing is when there's some awareness, when that reemerges, is to be very forgiving. This is not the time to judge ourselves because we should be grateful that to some degree we're aware that this emotional storm is swirling here. I'm so glad I'm aware because at least now I can do the best I can to not fall back in. 
And even if as I'm falling back into it to know that it's not helpful, but, you know, causes and conditions will have their way, right? The force of habit, the momentum to identify is having its way. But at least there's some part of the mind that realizes, you know what, it's not helping. But here I go. How many people have seen that happen in your life where you're on the cusp of doing something not so skillful and there's some wisdom in the mind that sees this pattern, understands this pattern, knows that it's not helpful, but there, there the mind and body does it anyway. But it's, even, it's better to know, to have some sense that it's not skillful because that's wisdom operating in the mind and it's getting stronger to the degree that that's recognized, that wisdom is recognized. Yeah, thanks for the good question. Uh, in relation to that, actually, I just wanted to share um, what, one of the big things that's come out of formal practice for me, um, which I was very fortunate to have a chance to do quite a lot of before becoming a parent, is that you know what we learn kind of retreat after retreat as we have this really precious time to really closely and sensitively come in contact with our emotional life is what the markers are, what the signposts are for when we're in wholesome territory and when we're in unwholesome territory. And you may, you know, at some point, if you've been at it a long time, have some sense of this for yourselves, or you may just be starting to develop it if you're a little bit newer. But so for me, um, uh, out in the course of, of just daily life, on the madcap adventure of caring for young children in this last uh, most recent phase of my life, uh, this has been incredibly valuable. You know, so just as you're saying, there's not usually the luxury to really, you know, deeply, subtly explore, you know, what's arising, how it's being known, you know, the, the practice doesn't look like that most of the time out in the course of daily life. But I know for myself that pretty much anything that's going to be a problem is going to show up here somehow. You know, I've learned that over the years from the time I've spent in formal practice. So you know, these past dozen years or so, this has become a real touchstone for me, is that I may not know exactly what's going on. You know, I may not even really have much of a clear idea of what's going on. It may just be a lot of confusion in the mind about what's going on. But I, it's become a habit to just keep feeling here just touching in with it just, just periodically over the course of the day. I do it now even without even really thinking about it. But for you know, a lot of years when my kids were first born, I did it very intentionally. You know, it's another, you know, we can develop habits these ways. So if I feel that certain quality of heart that's starting to constrict, it's like that's the speed bump. You know, that's the red flag that goes off that says, oh, you know, watch out, be careful, you know, something, you know, dangerous territory ahead, you know, when I feel the, the tightening, then that is like the, the mindfulness bell ringing to let me know, okay, slow down a little bit, take a deep breath, pay attention a little bit more closely. Okay, what, and again, you know, so honesty and intention, what's really happening here? Okay, something unwholesome, maybe I have no idea what. And what's my intention? You know, so in that, in that moment, that's a moment when I reaffirm, recommit to, okay, maybe the heart is totally clenched up, I'm in the midst of confusion, but what's my intention here? And let me just go, like Mark was saying, just a little bit slower and see if I can manifest that a little bit better. Or even if I totally fail, you know, at least there's, there's some awareness around it. Uh, and conversely, other times during the day, maybe I'll check in with the heart and it feels 
okay. You know, there's kind of a, you know, maybe not perfect, but it feels basically soft, basically open, just, you know, physically in this area. And so then I know that, okay, I'm not too far off track. So there are these ways in which, you know, we gather so much information about our inner lives here on retreat. And then that really is transferable, that really is portable, you know, so that we, you know, we're not practicing out in the world the way, the way we are here, but we're taking kind of like that really critical information that we've learned and, and putting that into practice in ways that are practical in the course of daily life. So, yeah. So we're sorry for all the questions we didn't get to, but we want to give you a break to get up and stretch, hit the restroom, get a drink, whatever you need to do before the managers talk at um, four o'clock, which is important that every com- everyone come back for. This is going to be the actual practical information about the closing of the retreat. And even if you've been here before, please uh, still attend because there's some things that are uh, might be a little different or, or a little different about the ending of this retreat. So we thank you for your practice and for your questions and wish for you that in, in time, all of your questions may be answered. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.